If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we have been in a series of messages that we are calling bodybuilding, and we have been talking about how we are building up the body of Christ, both as individuals and also as well as in our life corporately as the church. And we have spent most of our time in Ephesians chapter 4. We're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, and uh, we'll be looking at a passage of Scripture there as we continue our series. Have you, have you ever heard the, the phrase, to open up a can of worms. You ever heard that phrase? It's, it's interesting. It's history. If you look at it. Nobody's really um, confident for sure. But the speculation is this. Back in the 1950s. In the United States. When fishermen would get their bait. It didn't come in those styrofoam containers. You know like you get now if you go to a tackle shop. It literally came in a metal can. And so what they would do. If they were going to go fishing. Would buy their bait. And then they would... <laughs> Open up a can of worms, right? The problem was this, that if you kept the lid off for too long or if you knocked your can over, what you would find is that your worms would come out. And so now you weren't so worried about catching fish, you were worried about catching worms, right? So what happened was they would open up a can of worms and there'd be an unexpected consequence of more things coming out than they anticipated. That's what I did with my sermon last Sunday morning. I kind of opened up a can of worms. And we talked last week about a very interesting topic, a biblical topic, a, a scriptural one, that I think it's important for us to, to not negate or um, forget about or, in, in all honesty, to spend too little time talking about. So the subject that we talked about last week is a big one. It's all throughout scripture, and we talked about the subject of truth, right? So that's where we were last week. We, we looked at this coming out of a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we've been for a couple of months as we've been walking through this bodybuilding series. So let's look at that for a minute, Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I want to start by looking at that passage of Scripture. So uh, we're going to be primarily in Revelation 2. But as we begin, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, let's, let's read that as we start here this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. Paul writes... Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So here's what Paul is, is talking about there. Here, here's what he's saying to us. He says, as a church and as individuals, there's something we want to be concerned about. In verse 14, he says, you don't want to be infants anymore. That you don't want to be tossed around by doctrine and by the teaching that you hear. You want to be in a place where you are solid and stable as an individual and as a church. So he says, you want to go from immaturity to a place that you would call a place of maturity. And what he says is if you're going to go from immaturity to maturity, that there is something critical that must happen. He says, because there were false truths that were taking the church to a place of immaturity, he said if the church is going to be mature, then you need to speak the truth, right? Isn't that what he said? And so last week, we we took a look at this concept. Paul said that speaking the truth in love is essential if we are to go from immaturity to maturity. If we are going to go from a place of immaturity to a place of maturity, then it's essential that we speak the truth. 
And so we took some time last week to talk about this idea of the truth. Now, here's, um, here's just a brief recap of what we said last week. I don't want to go into great detail, but just kind of so we remember where we were coming from. And maybe if you weren't here last week, and you can get the notes and, and uh, watch the message online at our website. Here's just the six things that we looked at last week very briefly. The first is this. Number one, the truth is more than words. The truth is more than words. Paul says that we are to speak the truth in love, but when he uses that word speak, what it has in its, in its context, what it really means is more than just speaking the truth, but it talks to us about living the truth, about doing the truth, about acting out about the truth, about maintaining the truth. And so it's more than just the words that we speak. It's the way in which we live. The truth is more than words. Number two, the truth exists. We live in a world and in a culture that questions truth. That says, is there any such thing as absolute truth? Is there real truth? And in a world that's filled with, with realism and rationalism and where people say, look, I want to believe what I want to believe. And you, you say what your truth is and I'll say what my truth is. And, and I'm happy that you found truth and, and you're happy that I've found truth. In a world like that, it's good for us to know there is absolute truth. It's found in the word of God and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is essential for us to recognize. The, the third thing is that the truth is essential. And we talked about how Paul said if the church is going to grow from immaturity and maturity, it's essential that we speak the truth. We also looked at the fact that Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth, not one of the truths, not a truth. He said, I am the truth and I am the life. And so he says that if someone is going to know salvation... It's essential that it happens through him. That's the only way that we can be saved. He is the truth. Which takes us then to the fourth thing. Number four is that the truth will be challenged. We'll find that in our world and in our culture, there will be pushback. There will be people who say there is not absolute truth. Or you can't believe in something that way. Or that's narrow-minded. Or that's not quite right. In this particular service last week, I I, um, talked about the fact that this was my square table. Do you remember that? And then, and then I forgot the part where I was supposed to come back around and say that I'm not an idiot, right? <laughs> that I know that it's a round table because all of you, um, really you intolerant, bigoted, um, round table people would not let me refer to this as my square table. Who are you to tell me that this is not a square table? Even though you're right, right? And this is the world that we live in that when we say that something is truth, there's going to be a challenge. And people are going to say, no, you're intolerant. No, that's not right. Where do you get off telling me that that's a round table when I say that it's square? Does that make sense? So the truth's going to be challenged, which means this, number four, that the truth hurts. It's going to, it's going to cost us something. And number five, excuse me, that, that the truth hurts. I was, I was still back on number four. I was just kind of there for a minute. When, when you speak the truth, It's going to require that you live it out. It's going to require that you figure out what is truth. And as Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, he said, you may may be persecuted because of it. You're going to see hardship. You're going to have to persevere for the truth. But we know this, last thing, best thing, number six, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's, that's what we hold on to. That's our hope. That's why the truth is so important. So what happened last week was, um, was I proclaimed this truth and I said, we'll cover truth this week. And then next week we'll talk about how to speak the truth in love. How do you do that in love? And it was fun to be able to say that it was interesting to do that. And then it became quite the topic. 
And people started asking me questions. Well, how do you communicate the truth about this? And how do you communicate the truth about that? And how do you say to someone that you don't believe that they're living the right way? Or how do you challenge the culture when the culture says this is the norm, this is the right way? How do we say, no, God's word says it's another way? And it got a little tricky because it's fun for me to stand up here and to say, there is absolute truth. Because all of you people say, yes, there is. And then it gets sticky when you have to try to figure out, now how do I, how do I live that? And especially in love. Because then people said, well, what, what about the tragedy in the world? What do, you, what do you do with that? And what about my friend who is, you fill in the blank, living a lifestyle that's not biblical, but they're happy, or they're in love, or they're my friend. How do I speak the truth to them? And if God's so great and his truth is so solid, then why do I struggle like this? Or why am I this way? And what do you do with all of this? And so I said to you, that last week we talk about truth and that this week we talk about how to express it in love, but it became a can of worms and far more difficult than I expected it to be. So I've changed my mind. We're just going to talk about David and Goliath and we'll move right along. How's that sound? No, 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 no. Because here's, here's what Paul said. He said we're going to speak the truth, but we've got to do it in love. So, so what's that look like? Because anytime we communicate, it gets a little tricky, right? Because think about this from a communication standpoint. Let's, let's say you got two people who are going to communicate. So um, let, me, let me give you two people here. I drew these stick people in the first service, and a lady on the second row just laughed out loud. We've asked her never to come back. Nah, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so this is you, right? So this is you. And you are going to communicate truth to someone. In fact, you're kind of excited about it because you have the opportunity to communicate to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the person that you're communicating truth to, and they might not quite be ready for it, right? <laughs> They're a little surprised by the whole thing. Okay? So there's a couple of things you've got to consider, though. This is, this is key when you communicate truth in any way. One of the things you've got to consider is, how are they hearing this? Right? What are, that kind of looks like a little elf or something, doesn't it? Aren't you glad I went into preaching? Um, something's got to help that guy. Maybe a little hair or... Too late to start over. So you're communicating truth. And you've... you've yeah, stop right there. Thank you. Um, you've got to figure out how are they hearing this? What, what are they thinking? How do they already receive the truth? What kind of relationship do you already have with that person? You need to give real thought, and this is true in any area of communication, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with your child, whether it's with your neighbor, whether it's when we as Christians have to speak truth to the culture around us, we have to consider the fact, how are people hearing this? What does it sound like to them? So now it's getting a little complicated, right? Beyond that too then, you've got to consider, how am I communicating it? Because we already know that speaking the truth is more than just what we say, Right? It's what we do. It's how we live. So this, this gets tricky because it's not just what they hear. It's what you say. How are you going to communicate all of this? And I realized really quickly that this, this promise of, of saying to you, I, I, we're going to talk about how to speak the truth in love, is more than just something you can do on one Sunday morning. 
Because we have to talk about how someone hears it. We have to talk about how you actually do it. But before we even get to any of that, we've got to get to what I believe is the the primary, the most critical part of this whole thing. Because you can't speak the truth in love unless, to begin with, you have love in your heart, right? That's not a bad heart. That's all right. And so we have to begin right here today. So today, we're going to talk about our hearts And then we'll take the next two weeks to talk about how do we communicate something in a way so that people can hear it and realize the glory of Jesus Christ and and, and understand the gospel of his grace in a way that we can do that. Because you can speak the truth all day long, but if you don't do it with love, you're just wasting your time, right? So how do we find out how to do this? What's so critical about this? Where can we go in scripture to give give ourselves kind of a checkup for our hearts? Revelation chapter 2. Let's take a look there at this passage of scripture this morning. And we're going to take a good look at the state of our hearts today. We looked at this passage last Sunday morning, Revelation chapter 2. It is a message that Jesus is sending through John the Apostle to a church in a city called Ephesus. I thought it was interesting as as I was reading about Ephesus a couple of things. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in in the empire at that time. Did you know that Toledo, based on 2010 population statistics, is the fourth largest city in Ohio? Now, I don't think there's any biblical or prophetic uh, connection there. It's just kind of interesting. The other thing that's interesting is this. Ephesus was a port city. It was known for its essential port area, and it was a crossroads, north, south, east, west, of people that would come in and out of Ephesus for transportation and for commerce. And so it was a key port city with major highways that crisscrossed it, just like a place I know called Toledo. Now, does that mean that, that, that God's word is any more critical for us today than any other church? No, but if I can get you to think that by stretching the historical facts a little bit, maybe you'll wake up, okay? This is key for us. What does Jesus say to a church in a town called Ephesus 2,000 years ago that's so important for us to hear today? Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Jesus says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Just just to give a little... um, context there because we might not know when he says i hold those seven stars what he's saying is that i'm in charge of everything i created everything i got everything and when he says i walk among the seven lampstands if you read earlier in the book of revelation he talks about these lampstands they're symbolic of these seven churches that he's writing these key messages to and ephesus was one of these key strategic cities in the region at that time and it was one of the key strategic churches this will become very relevant in just a moment so he says i hold the stars i walk among the lampstands he's saying i'm right there in the midst of you i know what's going on in your lives and in your church verse two i know all the things you do i've seen your hard work and your patient endurance i know you don't tolerate evil people you have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Here's what he said. You have spoken the truth. You've lived the truth. You made sure that you acted on it. I saw your good deeds. He says, you made sure that you found out what it was. You didn't have any place for evil teachers who came into your midst. And even though it cost you something, I know your hardship. You persevered. And Jesus says, I commend you for that. Church, that was awesome. That in a culture that was so quickly turning against truth, you stood for truth. But, isn't that a scary word? He says, however, verse 4, 
But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. If you don't repent, I will come and take away your influence. If you don't, if you don't change how this is going, I'm, I'm going to have to lift the blessing. I'm going to have to remove the impact. I'm going to take away your lampstand. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Here's what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. I commend you because you speak the truth. He says, it's awesome that those Nicolaitans came in and they tried to bring too much of the culture into the church and you said, no, we're not doing that. We hate these evil practices. I commend you, but something's wrong, Ephesus, because you lost your first love. And you're speaking the truth, but you don't love me the way you used to. You don't love people the way you used to. So Ephesus, there's a problem with your heart. And Jesus says, I don't care how much you stand for truth. If you don't get your heart back in line with your first love, I'm going to have to take away your influence. I'm going to have to take away your place. I'm going to remove your lampstand. And Jesus says that without love, speaking the truth becomes worthless. Does that make sense? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Here's what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Here's what Paul said to the church in Corinth. Here's what we need to hear today at the church here in Toledo. If we lose our love, we will lose our light. And if we do not recognize that God has called us to love the world as we speak the truth, if we don't recognize that we're supposed to communicate with hearts of love, even more, if we in our own hearts lose our first love for Jesus... If he fails to be number one in our lives, we run the dangerous risk that if we lose our love, we're going to lose our light. So based on that, do you see why it's so critical that before we talk about what they hear or what we say, we've got to talk about who we are and what's primarily at our heart? Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So as the church and as followers of Christ in 2015, we've got to think, what does it mean for us to speak the truth in love? So consider this. If you just give people truth without love, that's condemnation, isn't it? Truth without love is condemnation. And so when I just speak condemnation to you, nobody gets saved on the basis of condemnation, right? Salvation comes not through condemnation, but there's got to be some grace in there, right? Condemnation just brings me guilt. So truth without love is condemnation. I've got to have love. But here's the problem. Sometimes I I want people to be happy. I want things to be good. So I give so much love that it's worthless as well. Because love without truth is just false hope. 
Because if I'm just saying to you, hey, I, I, I love you, I want you to be happy, I want things to work out, but there is truth somewhere that they're not grasping, then I'm giving them some form of hope that isn't real. So, so truth without love is just condemnation. That doesn't save. And love without truth is just false hope. That's not going to save. Think, think of this. Let's say you're in a burning building, and you're trying to figure out how am I going to get out. And there's several different ways that you can go, and I know which one it is. And I say to you, you should go this way to get out, but I know that that way is difficult. You're going to have to go up the stairs. You might even have to jump out a window, but that's the only way you're going to get out of that building. And I say to myself, you know, that way is hard, and they might not like it, so I'll just tell them another way because it'll be easier for them. They'll like that way more, but they can't get out. Have I given them any opportunity for salvation? No, I've just given them, it sounds better, they like it, it's easier, but it's just false hope. So truth without love is condemnation. Love without truth is false hope. What have we been called to do? We've been called to speak the truth with love. But Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, you will be ineffective. It will not work. It cannot happen if I'm not the first love in your life. So for you and I, before we even begin to deal with cultural issues and practical things, We've got to ask ourselves the question. I had, to, I had to very seriously challenge myself. And just to be quite honest, probably bring some course correction to some things in my life. When I ask myself the question, is Jesus my first love? Because if Jesus is not at the center of our lives, we become loud voices with empty rules and not messengers of eternal hope. If all we're doing is trumpet and truth, but Jesus is not our first love, we become these loud voices and we're throwing out religion and we're throwing out ideas and we're throwing out empty rules, but it's absent of the eternal hope that we're really called to give to people in the first place, right? So what does that mean for us? It means that before we do anything else, we've got to take time and examine the state of our hearts. And, and Jesus helps us to do that. He says, you've lost your first love. He gives them correction course. He tells them three things he wants them to do. And I think by looking at those three things, it helps us to recognize what happened. So I want to give you this morning, just real quick, three ways in which we can lose our first love. Three things that can cause us to lose our first love. And I challenge you to examine your own heart. Because these things affect your relationship with Christ. They affect your relationship with the world. They affect the way that you can communicate God's truth to other people. So three things that can cause us to lose our first love. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 and read again what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. He said, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Here's the first thing that I think causes us to, to lose Jesus as the first love in our life. And it's very simple. I would just, just call it number one, passing time. The passing of time causes us to lose that fervor, to lose that commitment, to lose that first love that we've had. Isn't that true? I think so many times we're excited about something. It's a big deal to us. But what happens is no matter how great that relationship is, no matter how great that thing is, over time we start to be familiar with it. We start to get used to it. We may even start to take it for granted. And over time we begin to lose our love for that person or for that place or for that thing. What happens is this. We lose our love when we don't remember. We lose our love when we don't remember. Do you, do you remember, um, do you remember when you, when you first, if you're married, do you remember when you first fell in love? 
kind of when that first happened. I asked that in the first service, and right down here in the second row is a couple that's getting married. I'm officiating their wedding in two weeks. And they like kind of looked over at each other with that dreamy look in their eyes. You know, and she looks up at him, and he looks down at her, and I'm like, oh, puke. Right? Come on. Get over yourselves. Why? Because you remember what it was like at first? You couldn't spend enough time with that person. You just wanted to be around them. You wanted to talk to her. You wanted to hear from him. You wanted to just spend time together. You were buying things for each other. You were, I love you, I love you, you know, and all this is, all this is what's going on. Why? Because it was new and it was fresh. That's kind of that first love that happens. But as time goes by, it's human nature, right? Over time, it just begins to not be the same. And time begins to wear those things down. And in the midst of it, what we have to do is remember, we lose our love when we don't remember. That's why over and over and over again, you'll hear, especially Paul in his epistles, remind the believers of this. He says to them, you cannot forget what Christ has done for you. Don't forget his unspeakable riches to you. Don't forget the love that he gave to you. Don't forget what he did on the cross. Don't forget the transformation that happened. Listen to what he says as he speaks truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he speaks some hard truth. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Difficult truth. And then he says, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul says to them, do not forget that. Don't forget what Christ did for you. Don't forget what He saved you from. Don't forget the grace that He's given that you never deserved. If the worst thing you ever did was steal someone's M&M, like that's it, that's all. You had an addiction to Skittles. I don't know what it is. Not a big deal. But you still needed a Savior, right? And you didn't deserve it, but Christ gave you that grace. He gave you that love. And we cannot forget what He's done for us. It's critical for us to come back to that place. But what happens is over time, I forget and I get kind of dialed down. And then sometimes I start to focus on other things. Sometimes I can get so dialed into the truth that I forget the part that I wouldn't even know the truth if it wasn't for His love. And I cannot forget that first love he gave to me. And when you come back to that and you remember it, it is a beautiful thing. I fell in love this week with something all over again. It was something that for the longest time I had forgot even existed. It was called sunshine and warmth. Have you heard of it? Right? Man, I went outside and my nostrils did not burn. It was a good day. I, got, I was in my car the other day. I pulled into a parking lot where I was at and I had a little bit of time. I just sat in my car for a while because it was warm and the sun was shining. And I'm like, Jesus is on the throne again, right? It's wonderful. When you get that feeling back, when you say that thing was lost and I have it again, it's a wonderful thing. Our souls go through seasons. And sometimes we go through dark seasons in our soul. Sometimes we go in a time of winter. And it's up to us, even in those seasons, to make sure that we don't lose our love for Christ. That we don't forget what He's done for us. That we don't let that just pass by. Because, first of all, it's critical for you. Because when you, when you let that love slip away, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, then your love begins to grow cold. It gets old. 
And that's not at all how Jesus intended for it to be. He wants you to have life and life to the full. But the other thing that's critical is this, that if you become so focused on the truth that you forget about love, how in the world are you ever going to express love to anybody else? Because you can't give something out of where you don't live. And when I remember the love I've experienced, it makes me want to share that love with others. And so if I want to see God work through my life, if I want to be a part of a church that's bringing change to the world, it's critical then that we be a place that not allow the passing of time to let our love grow cold, but instead we say, Jesus, help me to keep that, that you are my first love. Amen? Number two, go back to Revelation chapter two. What else can cause us to lose our first love? Jesus says that I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Here's the second thing I think Jesus is talking to them about today, and it's disregarded sin. It's when there's sin in our lives and we just kind of disregard it. We've got an attitude or maybe some bitterness. We got some ideas, or maybe it's an action, maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a thought, maybe it's a practice, maybe it's some relationships. That that we just go, well, it's not. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. It doesn't keep me from going to church on Sunday. And I'm I'm just I got a Bible at home and I'm good. I'm all right. And we take that sin and we disregard it. It's interesting what Jesus said to them. He didn't say You've stopped loving me. He said, I'm not your first love anymore. I'm not your primary love. You've let other things come in and compete for my affection. You've put other things in a place of more prominence in your life than I am. And as a result, what has happened is my love that I have for you is not the same as your love that you have for me. And you've pushed that love aside. And this is what happens. We lose our love when we don't repent. When we don't deal with that sin. When we don't take bold steps to deal with those things that are causing issues in our life and in our relationship and primarily in our relationship with God, we lose our love. This is so key. If, if I've got an issue with you and I don't deal with that issue, then it's hard for me to love you, right? I mean, you probably know what that's like in a family scenario. Until you deal with that issue, you can't have love. The same thing's true in our relationship with God. If there's that unconfessed sin, if there's that disregarded attitude, if there's that thing that we're just like, it doesn't really matter. The reason we say it doesn't matter is because we don't want to deal with it. And we push that thing aside. But what it does is it puts a barrier between us and God. And here's why. Because unconfessed secrets have damaging consequences for relationships. Would you agree? When that's, when that's there and it's under the surface. And it's not like God at any point has to say, oh, You did what? He saw it. He knows it. But it's between you and him. And it's created that callousness and that barrier. And it puts something between us in such a way that it causes our love to get old. Here's what David said, Psalm 119.11. He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says, Lord, I've taken your word and I've put it in my heart. I've put it in my heart. I've put it in my heart so that as a result, it helps me to push sin away. It helps me to see the right way to go. Lord, I've hidden your word in my heart so I might not sin against you. But if that's true, then the opposite is true as well. That God, if I have been chasing after sin, then it causes me to want to push your word aside. 
Have you ever noticed that when you let a bad attitude sink kind of deep into your spirit, you're not real crazy about reading your Bible? In those times when you're doing things that you know God wouldn't necessarily have at the top of your to-do list, you're not so interested in talking to Him. And sin works in that way. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, Hey folks, there's some things that have come into your spirits. There's some things that have come into your actions. There's some things that have come into your homes and your families. And they've kept you from me. And so you need, if, if you want this thing to be right, if you want your love to be back, you need to repent. Repentance means that you recognize that you are headed in the wrong direction and then change course to head in the right direction. Repentance is, is not just recognizing you're in the right direction or in the wrong direction. That's just you saying, oh, I'm sorry. Repentance means you says, I'm going that way, but I need to go this way. And I'm going to turn around and go in the right direction. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, or do you, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, God doesn't identify sin because he's cruel. God doesn't identify sin because he doesn't want you to have fun. God identifies sin because he wants you to have what's best for you. And his kindness leads us to repentance. I can very clearly picture in my mind the 1970s kind of yellow stove that we had in our kitchen when I was a kid. Do you know that nasty color I'm talking about? And um, gold. Yeah, it's kind of cruel to call it gold. That wasn't gold. I don't know what that was. And... Um, and I remember standing there, and we had an electric stove. It had the burner, and it would kind of glow, right? That was cool when you were a kid. And my mom said, don't touch that. It's hot. And I'm like, what's she know? <laughs> and so she stepped away. It glows. That's cool. I want to know why it does. So I touched it, and my finger started to glow, right? <laughs> and I found out why she said, don't touch it. She said, don't touch it, because she cared about me. She didn't want me to get hurt. I thought that's what I wanted to do, so I went after that thing. What does she know? But what she knew was what was best for me. God doesn't throw out the identifications for sin. He doesn't tell us to be careful about things because he doesn't want us to have fun or see cool stuff. He says that because he doesn't want us to get hurt. He wants what's best for us. So that's why if we want our hearts to be in the right place, it's a pretty good chance that we have to start with repentance. Third thing, real quick this morning. Number three, um, if we go back to Revelation 2, Jesus said, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and, listen to this, and do the things you did at first. Go back and do the things you used to do. Number three, third thing that can cause us to lose our first love, and it's spiritual apathy. When we just kind of get lazy, we get used to things, kind of take things for granted, and then with the passing of time and maybe even some, some disregarded sin in our relationship, we just stop doing the right things, and we just get apathetic. And here's what Jesus is saying to them, go back and do the things you used to do. <laughs> The stuff that you used to do when we were first in love. Go back and do that again. Start doing those things. Let it stoke that fire in you again. We lose our love when we stop acting in love. We lose our love when we stop acting in love. This, this is key. I can tell you, in my, in my experience as a pastor, the times when I have been the most frustrated with people. 
when they've come in for counsel or advice and sat on this couch in my office, these are the times that I've been, I have never been more ready to kick somebody out of my office or to go over and kick someone in my office as these situations. A couple of times, husband and wife come in, they sit on the couch in my office, they've been married 20 plus years, and I look over and I see the contempt that they have for each other in their eyes. They just, they glare and they cast accusations. You wouldn't know it because when they walk through the atrium, they look really happy. But you should see them at home. And you should see when I get them all fired up on the couch in my office. And I get so frustrated because you, you've been living like you don't love each other for 20 years and then you want to come in my office and have me fix it in 20 minutes? I'm good, but I'm not that good, right? Not even that good. Um, here's why. Somewhere, somewhere along the lines, they forgot what they'd found in each other. Somewhere along the lines, they began to just kind of disregard each other. They let time slip in, and critically, they stopped treating each other like they love each other. Well, she's not very loving to me. Well, he's not very loving to me. It doesn't matter. Start treating each other with love. And what happens when you do that is it stokes something inside of you. It begins to, to bring that, that feeling back. See, this is key and critical for us to recognize. The challenges in our lives often come because we just stop doing the things that are most important. The challenges in our lives often come because we just stop doing the things that are the most important. The reason that some of you are not in shape is because you stop doing anything that would help you to stay in shape. The reason that some of you are in the shape you're in is because you keep feeding that shape that you have those things that you shouldn't be feeding that shape. Does that make sense? So think of that spiritually. Think of that in your relationship with other people. The reason God feels distant from you is not because he went anywhere. It's because you stopped going towards him. It's because you maybe stopped doing those things that you did at first. And he says to you, I want you to have your first love again. Love does not begin with emotion. Love starts with action. It starts with me saying, God, even if I don't feel it, I'm going to do it. Love does not begin with emotion. Love starts with action. And so Jesus says to this church that loves the truth, but is running a little risk at what's going on in their heart. Look, you need to take a good look at yourselves and see, have you let time let your love grow cold? Because if you have, how are you ever going to show love to the world around you? And he says, you need to see if there's sin in your heart because you're not going to be able to help other people be rescued from sin if you're spending too much time loving it yourself to the point that you love it more than you love me. And he says very clearly, Go back and do the things you did at first. Let that love compel you then to show love to other people and let it change your life. See, we can speak about all we want, the truth and how it's communicated in love, but it won't make any difference unless first we do an evaluation of our own hearts. So let me, um, let me wrap up with one, um, one quick story and, uh, and then we'll talk about what all this means. My... Um, my dad's family heritage was 100% Irish. My last name's Gilligan. He was, the rest of his family was Clancy, Latimer, and Frampton. Top that, huh? Yeah. And if you don't have an Irish heritage like that, God still loves you. It's okay. It's cool. 
you, I mean, maybe in heaven you'll get something extra special. So this is, um, so then, um, boy, that hat looks good, doesn't it? It's like a, um, Tuesday, St. Patrick's Day, right? And sometimes I think we begin to think that the reason we celebrate St. Patrick's Day is because either he drove the snakes out of Ireland or he turned the beer green. We're not sure what, right? But maybe you don't know the real story. See, when Patrick was 16 years old, he grew up in what we believe today probably was in Scotland. And the, that, that part of the British Empire, Scotland, Wales, England, was at that time um, part of the Roman Empire. It was about 8,400 or so. And it was a part of the Roman Empire, and so they spoke Latin. They were very civilized. They were, they were the, the best people in the world, or so they thought. But if you just went across the sea a little ways, there was the, 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 the island of Ireland. And they were barbarians. They were by no means a Christian nation. They certainly weren't what the British would say was civilized. And what these barbarians would do on a regular basis is they would go from their place in Ireland. And at some points, there's only about 10 miles between Ireland and the coast of Scotland. And they would sail over there. And they had it down to an art where they could have people wait with their ships. Raiding parties would go into these areas of Scotland and Wales. They would go about three miles in. They would take whatever they wanted and then go back to Ireland. They were pirates. They were scavengers. They were pillagers or whatever whatever you want to call them. And on one occasion, when Patrick was six years was 16 years old, a raiding party from Ireland came and kidnapped him. And they took him back to, to a guy. They, they would have called him a king. He was more like kind of a regional warlord. And he became a slave to this Irish king. And Patrick's job was this. He would be sent out with flocks of sheep. And he was to care for them. And sometimes for weeks at a time with very little food, very little clothing, very little supplies... He would just be sent out to go and take care of these sheep by himself, all alone, living the life of an underprivileged slave. He went from a place of prosperity. He belonged to a very rich family in England. And now at 16, he finds himself in this place of slavery. When he was kidnapped, he had reached a point where he said, my father is a Christian, but I don't know that I am. He says, I'm not even sure I really believe in God. And he had basically walked away from the faith of his father. But while he was there in captivity in Ireland, what he began to do is he began to recognize, instead of turning his back on God and saying, where is God? God, why didn't you love me? He began to reach out to God, and he developed a very real relationship with Jesus as his heavenly father there in his place of captivity. And God took the first place in his heart. After about six years, when he was 22 years old, one night in a a dream or a vision, God spoke to Patrick and said to him, get up and go, your ship is waiting for you. He, he, He wasn't anywhere near a coast. But he took that as the voice of the Lord. And so he stood up in the middle of the night and he just began to walk. He had to walk probably about 200 miles before he got to a shore. And when he did, there was a boat there. And he was able to get passage on this ship. And after an extended period of time, he was finally able to escape from his captivity in Ireland. And he made it back home, back to civilization, back to his family, back to some place where they spoke Latin and not these barbarian languages of Ireland. But when he was there, with God as his first love and preparing to be in ministry, he had a a dream, he had a vision of someone from Ireland saying to him, come back to us and he couldn't get the Irish people out of his brain and he knew that God was calling him to go and speak the truth in love to a nation who not only needed to hear it but didn't want to hear it and people thought he was crazy people thought he was 
nuts for doing it. And some theologians believe that for the first time since the Apostle Paul in, in about A.D. 400-430, Patrick loaded up and went across the sea and went to Ireland and became the, the patron saint, the missionary to Ireland. And literally, this one man in the movement he started had the ability to change that whole nation. And a, a great book is, is the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. I thought my name would be in it. It's not, but that's okay. And... Um, and kind of chronicles the story of how because of the influence of the gospel, powerful things happen, which bring us to this truth. One person living the truth in love has the power to change a nation. One person living the truth in love has the power to change a nation. And wouldn't you say, Calvary, that our nation is in need of a change? So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? And we've got just a couple of minutes left, and I want to challenge you. Next couple of weeks, we'll talk about the rest of this process, but today it's got to start with our hearts. And Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, that the passing of time and the sins that they disregarded and the apathy that had set in had kept them from making him the center of their lives And the challenge was this. Will you put Jesus at the center? Because if we do, God can use us to speak the truth in love in a life-changing way. And I don't know that any one of us in this room, in in God's great scheme of things, is going to change a nation. But I sure believe that we can change the world we live in and that we can be a part of a church that's bringing life change and that your family and that your co-workers maybe even just one life could be affected by God's work in your life if you'll make him the center of it all so if you'll take those things that we're talking about here today Beverly's going to lead us in this song that we know called Jesus at the center of it all And as we sing this song in these next few moments, would you reflect in your life, and if there's a place where you say, Jesus, I've got to put you at the center, would you open up your heart and make room for him today? Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. Nothing else matters. 
I just simply ask this question that um, if this morning you would say, Jesus, I, I need you to restore in, in my life that first love. I need that love for you to, to be first place in my life again. If that's you, would you just, just raise your hand just between you and God? God, that's me. Yeah, man, hands all over. God, that's me. And possibly you're here and you would say, it's, it's not again. I, I need that love in my life. I need God's forgiveness and his grace. I, I saw these individuals be baptized today. I heard the stories of how Christ can change a life. Jesus, today, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Jesus, I need you in my life today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. And thanks. If you raised your hand or if you're here today and you know that Jesus is your Lord, would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your Son to die for my sins. I ask today that you'd forgive my sins, change my life. May you take first place. May my love for you be first in my heart. I give myself to you today in Jesus' name. Father, we ask that you would help us as your people to speak the truth in love with love for you being first place in our hearts, we pray. As we go from here, will you go with us? Send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.